Hi, this is presenter Christodinopoli, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R each Sunday afternoon. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU. Yama, and welcome back to Indigenuity on 3 Triple R. And we are now onto the exciting portion of today's show where we get to speak with our guest. So today we're going to be having a chat with Wiradjuri writer, poet and academic Janine Lean. Janine has been widely published in the area of Aboriginal literature and creative nonfiction, with her first volume of poetry, Dark Secrets After Dreaming, winning the Scanlon Prize for Indigenous Poetry, and her debut novel Purple Threads winning the David Unayapon Award, amongst many, many other accolades, I must say. Janine's new work, Gawimara Gathering, is a collection of poems that move from deeply tender meditations on country, culture and kinship to experimental archives dissecting the violence and destruction of the settler colony. Gawimara is told in three parts, Gathering, Nation and Returning, and is the result of decades of poetic, political and cultural work and reflection. Janine, welcome to Indigenuity. Uh, you're a Dumaring. And um, thank you, Crystal, for having me and inviting me on to talk about my new work and to talk about poetry and First Nations writing. Thanks. I'm so thrilled to have this chat with you today. There's so much to cover. I wanted to start off by asking if you could tell us a bit about this this title theme that called of gathering. So the title of your poetry collection, but also this theme that is absolutely um, intertwined throughout the entire collection itself. Could you tell us a bit about this idea of gathering as a cultural practice? Yeah, I would like to do that. I I just should start, though, by acknowledging that I, too, am um, speaking today on the lands of the Wurundjeri peoples of the East Kulin Nations, and I've had the great privilege of being a visitor on these lands um, for about the last eight years um, I'm also acknowledging uh, Wurundjeri peoples um, and Wiradjuri peoples, who are the people I belong to, along the Murrumbidgee River, and um, also acknowledging solidarity among all peoples on occupied lands as I speak today. Thanks. Gathering as a cultural practice is um, something that I became conscious of, I think, I grew up in a house full of three generations of women, grandmother, aunties, and my mother. Very kind of matriarch-focused house and a house where a lot of people like to talk and tell stories. And also just to, you know, I think we grew up in this large extended family, so we're used to sort of gathering up all sorts of things. Um, I was born in the 60s, so there was no kind of... People weren't doing traditional gathering, But my grandmother used to talk about gathering and we used to walk in the bush a lot and I realised as an older person a lot of the stories that they were telling me were actually gatherings as well and that this is an important role that women play. Um, I've written a lot about gathering in an Mm. academic sense too as a method and a methodology Um, and it is a way that is an impo- really important gathering's really important to the sustenance of people 
because you gather all sorts of small things that, um, I mean, in a traditional sense, women gathered seeds, berries, um, you know, fruits, leaves, small creatures, um, plus all sorts of medicinal things. But so also like a lot of the custodians of small stories and family stories and anecdotes that are really as important as the um, creation stories. And so... Um, I think I came to see it more and more that way as I got older and also as as someone growing up in the 60s onwards and from, and being descended from that large Aboriginal family, I became very conscious of such things like discrimination and the, um, you know, some of these stories that my grandmother and my aunties used to tell about different times and uh, I was a child when the last referendum was on, in 1967. So, you know, um, I put this collection together in the end as a way of thinking about, you know, as, as, a, as someone who grew up in that, with that great cultural grounding and then also grew up with this grounding, I mean, initially by default, but then I found it useful, um, solid grounding in Western education. Um, like empires and nations, they are written. You know, they're built, but they're written predominantly. Um, and as invaded peoples, I think we've been written into these empires and nations in ways that um, speak about us and not, ri- not for us. And we're in this someone else's picture not to our own liking, you know, it's like very much forced into images and I did write a poem called Forced Into Images, um, which I might share in a minute. Um, Yeah, I I became very conscious of the literary entrapment or, you know, the literary incarceration um, of First Nations people in this national story. That was really misrepresentative. to say the least, that's probably an understatement, mm. but yeah. Um, and so if nations can be written, they can also be unwritten. I think um, I was fortunate enough to have that those strong women who and be, to be born at a time of flux when things were changing. I mentioned to you in our earlier conversation, Crystal, there was a 1967 referendum. We also had the Whitlam government who abolished tuition fees and um, put into place a lot of a series of reforms that assisted for people, black kids, working class kids, people like me to to access tertiary education. So I came to think about it that way too. So this is a you know great gathering of work that writes back to that kind of. Um, literary incarceration. And what one of our other really good poets, Bunjalung writer Evelyn Ara Lewin, said in her seminal work, Drop Bear, um, also a collection of poetry that won the Stella Prize in 2022, that much of our entrapment in colonisation is literary. So it makes sense that our resistance 
should also be so. That's excellent. And also, very thrillingly, we did have, we were so lucky to have Evelyn on last oh, yeah. week, which was just an absolute treat. Um, I've been such a massive fan of her for years and ever since the Drop Bear collection, I've been so excited to have a chat. Um, but it is interesting what you're talking about here because I guess this idea, this theme of gathering, it has so many meanings. And even through reading your poems, it became clear that it's those those traditional practices as well as even like the gathering of secrets, the gathering oh, together, yeah. the gathering of knowledge. It's gathering of knowledge, the gathering of secrets, the gathering of, you know, like a bit of a toolkit for survival, which I think is what the older women did give me through their close observations of, because you know, they all worked in some sort of subservient ways mm. for white women and it was a rural area, so mostly to do with homesteads and, you know, stations, um, pastoralists. Um, so, yeah, and I, I, one of my short poems, this is a, also in this book, has some very short and some very long poems, mm says history's not the past history isn't even what happens history's just someone else's story labeled as truth so i t- yeah take a lot of that and i i guess with that's coming as well you're talking about that um i guess like uh, co- like as evelyn said and i apologize because now i'm going to paraphrase this and probably completely butcher the be- beautiful poetic nature of her words but um, with a lot of this colonial practice coming through like being literary and then in that form resistance needing to be literary as well is that sort of the inspiration I guess for those three dividing themes of gathering um, that's one of the inspirations I also wanted to take this work in like an arc it's not like a thinking about shapes I think about shapes a lot mm. I'm a pretty visual kind of person as well um rather than take any readers in a straight line I want to take readers in a more circular arc shape of a journey which is a lot more in keeping with the way that we might keep time you know now is then is now um um also, I used in, in the book, um, in Gorimara, I used the Wiradjuri words. Uh, Gorimara actually means to gather, and then I um, added also the um, continuous verb, gathering. But Gorimara, gathering or to gather, and Nagalalamgan Bina are in Wiradjuri, returning. Whereas nation is just in English. Mm. So I did want to put um, in another one of my poems, I said, you know, um, history doesn't have the first claim, nor does it have the last word. So by putting nation in the middle, I also want to talk about or or get hopefully people might visualise this too in the book, that there's... This is this, we are deeper than the nation, but we're also beyond the nation as well. Um, and nation is in the middle here to kind of reflect that visually. But also in that section on the nation, the poems do change as well a bit. Um, and they move from poems, I think, introducing the idea of gathering and and you know secrets and women and then it goes into these much more um blunt and excoriating critiques of 
the nation that I see it anyway with poems like Deuteronomy is Genocide or Historians or On International Women's Day, which is a pretty kind of blunt critique of white feminism or they said I could be a feminist mm. or oh, Australia. So, um, but then it brings it back in the third section to the intimacy of what Israeli kind of bigger than and beyond the nation itself and what allows us to survive. So I wanted to take people on that sort of arc circular journey. Mm. You definitely do. Oh, gosh. Thank you. You're, yeah, I'm, I'm in love already. So I, I've really enjoyed reading this collection. Uh, you really do feel that journey and I do really appreciate the tying it back in. Um, the, you know, things aren't... Um, the lost and um no things aren't lost yes and people talk about sleeping languages mm. and i did write some poems about the loss of language and what it was well i never had it but i wrote about what it was like to be born in and then have to go back as an adult and learn the language that should have been your birthright so yeah there's some poems that grieve that but they also show the resilience like well the but the language is still there yeah and I wanted to um, take a second to acknowledge some elements of these this collections of poems. It's not just the beautiful things that we can hear and we can read, but there is a visual element to some of them, which I find very interesting, especially someone who is not educated formally in creative writing oh. or poetry at all. Um, I was wondering if you'd tell us a bit about um, some of these collections of poems. So we had Mural and Gurin, mm -hmm. the White Trinity, Wiradjuri Dictionary, for example, that have been actually placed along the page in a rather distinctive manner. And so I was wondering if you'd tell us a bit about what the the role in changing the uh, layout of text plays in those poems. Yeah, and I'd just like to also comment that a couple of those poems, like Mirul and Girang, which means um, clay and charcoal, and also um, the White Trinity, and um, were written in response to an art exhibition, their ekphratic poetry, um, and um, so they were, in, they were inspired, and I mentioned in my earlier answer, I am a visual person. I like to think about the shape of writing, not just the content of it. And um, this exhibition, these, that it was not at, uh, it was called 2020, and it was at Mama, which is Murray, Aubrey, um, something art gallery, yeah. Um, but anyway, it was a great exhibit called 2020 and it was reflecting on the pandemic. Ah. Yeah, and um, it had – but it did have quite a few First Nations and I chose to respond to these two. And when I looked at their work, it was really kind of <coughs> – it speaks a lot more to the, you know, both these works and particularly the White Trinity, they really interrogate – this line between, look, what is fiction in fact anyway? Like, you know, there's a whole national fiction out there and in particular the piece, The White Trinity of Genocide, Archie Moore takes a direct quote in one of his artworks from oh, Deuteronomy, which is about an absolute slaughter. It's what you do to your enemies. Um, and it is... You can't read that piece in any other way and think, uh, I think this is adv advocating genocide when you're talking about we must kill everyone um, and leave no survivors. Wow. Uh, 
yeah, and you about you think about the violence of those words. And so with those poems, I want to challenge those truths, but also wanted to challenge the shape of the page because we are kind of limited by these, you know, I've written a lot about how many things came to colonise us, like there's disease, there's people, there's buildings, you know, there's wire. People have talked about all these things which are really important, but there's also paper, the colonising effects of paper, So um, I want to just challenge the shape of the page as well. And so I put my response to Archie's in in a cross and um, I also – it's a bit of a found poem too because it's playing on some quotes from from that book in the Bible and it's just changing the words of the people that are to be massacred to people like – the Darug, the Gadigal, the Wawajari, the Gamelari, the Kulin Nations. Um, And in challenging the shape of the page, I want to challenge the shape of the nation as well. Excellent. Because it is like that is is very much shaped by these words, by these myths. And I wrote a poem which I'll share a bit of. It's a long poem, so I'm going to share the second half, but it's called Forced Into Images. And it's a a poem to my colonisers. I want to acknowledge that uh, this poem is inspired by many black women. All my work is inspired by matriarchs, um, First Nations peoples here, first and foremost, but also some of them are black black matriarchs on Turtle Island like Toni Morrison or Audre Lorde um, and First Nations writers there. And Alice Walker also wrote a piece about being forced into images in that particular context and Destiny Deacon made a wonderful photographic um, interactive installation with children in it that was also called Force, with black kids in it that was called Forced Into Images. So, black bodies are for theorists, linguists, anthropologists, historians, ethnographers and white scientists. We make data, statistical reports, policy fodder, textbooks, portraits, postcards, tourist brochures, this stuff of images – Noble savages, wanton women, black Jezebels, murderous heathens, witch doctors, baby-eating cannibals, an ass hanging out of their pants, drunken fringe-dwelling bum. Australia is a violent translation. It's not my myth. It's yours. Countries invaded for nation. A land of grids and gradients, maps and clocks, of mathematics and science that cannot read a body that might be made of water, sand, or soil. Things that have more names than I could write on this page if I could ever know them. I'm a bad translation, colonial abomination, a sharp pointed footnote that jabs the soul of the respectable body of history treading on the page above it. Nation forces its image over our countries. And there is no word in my language for environment or climate, just country, Ngomberang. 
Rednecks believe that they have conquered an empty land for progress and prosperity. Greenies want to restore a mythic environment to a pristine wilderness of unpeopled space. In between this colour politics, I am erased from the picture. Nation tells me my glass is half full. And I say, I understand your colonial fractions that cut up land, rivers and bodies. Half, quarter, one-eighth, one-sixth. If you were not here... I would not be half in the nation that silences me, divides me with numbers, cuts me with glass, forces me into its image. Wow. That's incredible. So many layers as well to even just the title. And, yeah, and once again, as a finish, I do want to acknowledge that I took, a, you know, many other black women have talked about this kind of, yeah, forcing image forcing, misrepresentation, like who's got control of the national story. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Uh, Janine, I wanted to have a little bit of a a segue into you've written quite a bit about waterways across Mm. your collection and also just in general, um, you as a speaker over the years, identifying as a freshwater woman. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what role do the rivers play for you in your life? Yeah. Yeah. Um, rivers and creeks are really important to me, all that fresh water. And I think, yeah, I always say I was born the freshwater cradle of Australia between those three beautiful rivers and then that are sort of a part of the bigger cradle of the Murray-Darling or the Barker Mm. Basin. And that system is just a beautiful kind of veins and artery and kind of like system in country and the rivers in addition to carrying that really oh yeah important fresh water you know salt water's nice it's fun looks pretty but you need fresh water to uh to live and um i think that we were just born in this beautiful kind of country colonization aside that had this beautiful fresh water and river flats but also these really spectacular I also love granite so I write a lot about huge granite kind of sentinels and things like cathedrals which I've which are cathedrals actually my grandmother used to often say things like that like the river is my church or um and so um I just came to know how important it was and we used to spend a lot of time playing in creeks and also learning about things that live there and collect things and learning how to respect and be responsible about water because it's it's not it's really important part of a system. It's not just there for our benefit or for mm. our but we are lucky enough to if we care have get those benefits. And also in my earlier work in my first novel Purple Threads which talks a lot about country and has just been re-released as part of the UQP University of Queensland Press classic series which I recommend. Um, Oh we've discussed that previously on the show that's exciting. Yes I really recommend that classic series for um, anyone who wants to um, just engage with um, a real selection of First Nations and it comes like a beautiful set with wonderful artwork from First Nations artist Jenna Lee. Oh, I um, love Jenna. In, for, in Purple Thread, so I wrote a lot about country 
and and how to care for country and how to read country and that country and that there's many kinds of literacy. People were always ramming book literacy down uh, other people's necks or uh, using that as a form of exclusion. But the first form of literacy here should be knowing how to read water and sky and weather and rivers. Uh, yeah. So, um, and I think that that's if, if everyone had that kind of literacy of being able to read the the way country and also being able to acknowledge these entities like rivers as living entities. In Aotearoa, New Zealand, there is a river, which I'm not going to attempt to pronounce the name of because I will murder it, but that has full human rights. And I've just recently learned, I have to do a bit more research, but also in Scandinavia, there is a river that has. And Mojave poet Natalie Diaz has written about so the rights of those rivers, but not in Australia or the United States or you know, Turtle Island, the United States, and but rivers and mountains, even the rocks, they're, they're all kind of living entities that what we need to be taking care of. So, um, yeah, and I actually wrote a poem called Read the Rivers, which was a long time, you know, it was something I thought about a lot, but I probably think the tipping point for writing this poem was about two years ago when I saw specifically the program about water harvesting. I mean, there's nothing I didn't know about the world of water being post-truth, because it is, like politics, and... But I think just to see it so graphically laid out in that documentary and also to hear people's denial was the tipping point where I put this poem together and it was after the Black Summer. Mm. Yeah, and in the lead-up to those Black Summers, really unusual things did happen. Like I was on a residency down south of New South Wales where it's pretty cold in July and I was on a bushwalk and we saw a snake, you know, just out coming out, which is so unusual for July and it was so unusually not winter that, you know, it was a really, like things are really, and the mob down there were referring to it as upside down country. So read the rivers. Ice melts, fires burn, Australia is a furnace, code red alert, painted across the horizon. It was summer or winter. Snakes came out in July, body rhythms confused. Will our children still exist by the time this is irreversible? Will they live in a time when the only ice in the world is pulled from the guts of a machine? Will grandparents be the one to break the myth that the earth was not always burning or the sea was not always rising? That once there were trees, birds, fish, animals, that once there were islands swallowed by the sea. Rivers are living bodies that have no human rights. Rivers are archives of country. Rivers are veins that go to the heart of the land. Hold these imprints in your memory. Don't let them fall from your view. Floodplains are now harvested. Rivers are troughs for capitalist pigs. 
Decline is not the natural order of things. We know the earth is warming, fresh water is shrinking, salt water is rising. We know fish are dying, animals disappearing, birds falling from the sky. Please pause to think extinction is now. It's so powerful. I'm really sick of also that narrative discourse that this is this is the way things are you know we have droughts and fires and rains and I'm also sick of people quoting Dorothea McCullough's poem as a kind of anecdote for climate change you know the droughts and flooding rains and I think apart from the fact she wasn't even in Australia when she wrote that poem um, and barely lived here mm. says a lot but you you know, I mean, we really need to apply a critical reading to literature like that and think, okay, this is what we really need to undo, this kind of ethos. Absolutely. It's so interesting that you remark about the noticing those changes in the winter prior to those fires because that is also something that um, – and I, I'm so sorry because I have – unfortunately memory issues thanks to COVID and so I feel really terribly because there was this beautiful Yorta Yorta elder who was speaking to us about it and I can't remember his name at the moment Um, but he was talking about how um, or at least um, some of the other people we're interacting with talking about how he had called it the year before about the fires because he said there were just changes in the environment even from animal behavior where it was just so obvious that something's coming were actually some that's the people who said it was upside down country yeah they were actually saying uh similar things there's a lot of wombats down there Mm. they were behaving very unusually um the snake apart from the unusual time when it was out was not kind of behaving i mean yeah it throws everything out of of moving very sluggishly across the ground like it shouldn't have been out but it was really confused yeah gosh but yeah very important message to read rivers and on indigenuity we've been um very uh lucky to have conversations with knowledge holders talking about yeah some of the issues with um waterways across victoria from different mobs which is um really distressing and i've learned a bit through um how political the issue is too as well with water access and who's in charge of it and do you get cultural flows are they important in the schemes of the economy and yeah so it's important um i really do this is my favorite poem reading the river so i appreciate that a lot thank you i wanted to ask some questions then because you have a few poems that you've very um lovingly dedicated to uh at least from what i've seen there's three Mm. um i know there's of course more you've acknowledged um to to some people who they are for in some Mm. of your poems but these three are very specifically like odes to those people and so i was wondering if you just tell us a little bit about who these people are and what these poems are yeah i really love these poems and i'm really grateful to you know a couple of colleagues of mine uh, like Jessica Wilkinson and Cassandra Atherton for example who invited me initially to this project called the memory book where they were asking people to to if they wanted to engage with elders and then somehow make turn that into some sort of tribute or bio poem or poem or life poem yeah, bio poem I think this is the first time I've seen like a bio yeah, poem yeah and um so, of course, I had no trouble thinking of who to speak to, and these women have been seminal in my life. Auntie Jenny Kimara Martiniello is a, a South Aranta artist, and if you haven't seen her glasswork, you need to just get onto it straight after this program. She's a glass artist, as the poem suggests, um, weaving glass. 
And she, with glass, makes these just outstandingly amazing traditional objects like baskets and eel traps and fish traps. Wow. Yeah, check them out. Um, Arnie Elaine Lomas were a custodian and elder who I I don't speak Wiradjuri language fluently and it's something I'm going to learn as I move out of full-time teaching and more into full-time writing. Um, but Arnie Elaine Lomas took me on a journey with language poems. Once again, I'm grateful for another project I was invited to through Red Room Poetry, which was called Poetry in First Languages. Um, and so, and the wonderful Arnie Carey Reed Gilbert, who I was really close to until her passing, unfortunately, in 2019. And I have a poem in here for Arnie Carey. Um, yeah, we... Um, she unfortunately was unwell, otherwise I would have liked to also have a language journey with Arnie Carey, but Arnie Elaine um, and I took Arnie Elaine took me on this special language journey um, and was so generous in sharing her her story with me as well. Um, and so and Tracy is my peer. Um and, you know, I wanted to put a poem in there to someone who I knew shared the kind of... Tracy and I were both born in October 1961, so that's... Um, I kind of have this thing about numbers as well, even though they're an introduced thing, but, you know, my grandmother got into numbers a bit and as part of signs, and there's a lot of numbers in Western philosophy, and, um, you know, I'm a seven... And um, so um, Tracy and and she's a twenty one. <laughs> so, but mostly it's because of that experience that we have shared as Aboriginal women growing through these times that I wanted to acknowledge a peer, but also well, we are both older women. Tracy and I, born in the sixties, um, and and this whole book is a tribute first and foremost to all matriarchs, all Aboriginal matriarchs, um, who, because they've all contributed to my journey in some way or other. And these were three particularly special people um, that I um, got to acknowledge in this book. And um, just a little bit on process, I sat down and yarned. I knew these were all women that I didn't know. So I sat down and yarned. There was rapport there. And I sat down and yarned with these wonderful women for hours and I recorded it and then I kind of transcribed that recording, which took hours, yeah. but it was really good. And um, out of that, yeah, I just drew on some of the real essences and strengths and flow of their words. So these poems are a lot of their own words as well. Excellent. Yeah. And I had the privilege of putting that together. 
Um, and Janine, wanted to end off with a couple of questions. You've had a pretty uh, heavy responsibility on your shoulders recently. So we've had the Vic Premier Awards um, or Vic, Victorian Premier Literary Awards mm-hmm. recently announced just this past week. Um, I was very excited to be able to watch some of the excitement yeah, go down they in were person. Really good. Mm. But you unfortunately or fortunately had the wonderful task and honour of being the convener and judge for the Indigenous Writing category. Could you tell us a bit about what you experienced this year? Yeah. Um, This is not my first time judging on literary panels. It was my first time with this particular panel on the VPLAs. But, yeah, um, it's always what was the experience like. Look, it's... It's both a privilege and it's also a challenge, you know. It's it's really sometimes there's a lot of angst there as well because we get so many good books and in a prize, say, like Indigenous writing, it's different. Um, I really want to point that out because, you know, if you're judging on fiction, which I've oh, done before, yeah. and poetry, it's uh, it, that's the genre. It's, it's going to be fiction or it's going to be poetry, however experimental and it much it might push the boundaries within that but this is all genres you know it's play it's non-plays it's non-fiction it's poetry it's creative non-fiction so it's like apples to oranges in a way isn't it because it's just beautiful voices it's beautiful voices and i think it is it is very difficult and i also want to acknowledge my co-judges i was judging with two other great um first nations uh writers but look in the end, Indigenous creative nonfiction, First Nations creative nonfiction, is really making its presence felt. And I really, you know, that's a really important way of telling stories as well and being creative, at, but also using this wealth of experiences that we have. Um, and so, you know, in the end, we did come up with um, three shortlisted books which were wonderful. We had the wonderful Daniel Browning, close to the subject, mm. and the wonderful Ellen Van Neven, personal score, and John Morrissey, Firefront. We also highly commended the wonderful Mel Soward for her debut novel. We had her on last year, and I love that novel. I was so Burn excited. It was a really, yes. uh, and that's the challenge. Like, you know, and we can, and they're really strict about how many can have. Yeah. We could have really shortlisted 10 books. Yeah, definitely. But congratulations to those who were shortlisted, to all those people who finished a book. Like that's a big achievement in itself. Um, And so, yeah, it is a privilege. And if possible, I always say yes to judging on these because it does, it just gives you this tremendous privilege of seeing what everybody's wonderful creative offerings for the 12 months. And um, I think that's – and that's where other festivals like Black and Bright and the First Nations Aboriginal Writers Network gatherings are really good too because they're getting together around – everyone's writing yeah no it's always so exciting for me to see the indigenous writing category uh, i do i'm just a little self plug um was nominated last year but just even checking the books yes. that we were up against back then oh my god like it, it's like impossible to ch- i can't imagine which um but also just like the different range because you really do we had like drama poetry uh fiction mm-hmm. and non-fiction all in one category and just you know incredible voices 
but you've done very well. Congratulations to Daniel Browning on um, taking out the... the and to all the shortlisted works and to all the First Nations writers who took out prizes. Melissa Lukashenko took out the Fiction Prize for that wonderful work, Eden Glossy, which I was lucky enough to review for the um, Australian Book Review. And to Ellen Van Neven, who took out the nonfiction prize. For personal score. Yeah, I'm a big fan of everyone. Yeah. So it's a me, wonderful night. Janine, thank you so much for your time here today. Um, just a reminder that we've been speaking about the wonderful collection of poems called Garimara Gathering. Um, it is now available. You can also attend the book launch coming up on the 15th of Feb, Thursday, 6.30pm. Just got to search it up in Book In. And if you've just tuned in now, uh, don't fret because you actually can go back and listen to today's shows and the poetry readings. Uh, at your leisure. So you go to rrr.org.au or search up the Indigenuity podcast later on. Uh, not tonight. Let's give Alex a bit of a, a chance to, to do some editing. Uh, but Janine, thank you so much for your time. Mandanguru, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this chat and I encourage all my listeners to engage with all our works out there. Thank you. Excellent. Take care. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R every Sunday afternoon. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU.